0: What do you love about music?
1: To begin with? (laughs) Everything.
2: a great show is the most important thing you can do one great rock show can change the world Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DiRigatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times.
3: And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, well, we've got a new album by Nelly Furtado. We've got Jim DiRigatis with a Desert Island jukebox pick. But not to minimize the importance of those things, Jim, (laughs) but we've got something that's really, really Important. I think in, you in were burying your show. lead there, yeah. I think you're right. The lead is
2: that we're being joined live in the studio by Tom York and Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead. A really important group. It can't be uh, underestimated. How adventurous and avant-garde they are in terms of stretching the musical boundaries, but also they're an arena act. They're in the midst of a theater tour, sort of celebrating the release of Tom York's solo album, The Eraser, in a couple of weeks, but really tweaking their new material for an album that probably isn't going to come until next year.
3: Right, their seventh album, their six previous albums have all gone at least a million selling level, if not more. They are one of the biggest bands in the world, and yet one of the most experimental elms ever made to debut at number one on the Billboard Charts, Kid A in two thousand. I can't think of a record that combined the avant-garde with pop accessibility in a more profound way than
2: that one. And I think that's really the key to this band, Jim. Mr. Cott, I will say with pride that I think that we got some some stuff out of them that will surprise fans and will also perhaps introduce them to people who don't know what this band is about. Let's just dive in. Radiohead on Sound Opinions. We're
3: uh, here with Tom York and Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hello. Thank you.
2: <laughs> All right, I've, I've got to start by asking you guys about this. <laughs> Radiohead played Madison Square Garden a couple of nights ago. It was the second show in New York, and there's a, a scuffle in the crowd, so some action in the crowd. Six big guys surrounding some woman who turns out to be one of President Bush's daughters. You have been uh, rather critical, Tom, <laughs> of President Bush. What was your reaction? I mean, you wrote about this on the web. What was your reaction to having uh, a Bush in the audience? I mean, it, it is as I wrote in the blog.
1: Uh, I don't know how these things work. I'd love to know if she actually had a ticket. <laughs>
2: well, no, you know, the heck with her. her. What about the six Secret Service agents? Yeah, I bet they didn't have a ticket.
1: <laughs> they came, with six Secret Servicemen to the show, and... It's a good job no one told me before. <laughs> well, I, I like
2: your, your list of potential reactions. You might have felt A, honored, B, amused, C, bemused, D, asked if she had a valid ticket, E, objected belatedly on moral grounds. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> F, asked again if she had a ticket and questioned whether this really uh, was what our gigs were about, G, don't blame the daughter for the father. Which is, that's very nice of you. And H, shut up or smile. Shut up and smile, yeah. 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 <laughs> that's, my, that's my normal
3: response. Well, so it's got to be a little bit harrowing, have a, have a, uh, a member of the Bush household. Well, uh, I mean, we,
1: we, we didn't know anything about it. I mean, all, all I remember talking to Phil about it afterwards, like, what was that fracas going on? It was some guy being pushed around by Secret Service. I've since heard other stories about other gigs with the uh, Bush daughters in Secret
2: Service, but anyway, I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> other gigs by you guys? Uh-uh. Well, you, you've been uh, making some kind of news by uh, thumbing your nose at different authority figures. I mean, Didn't Blair ask you to lunch or ask you to a meeting and you said, what's the point? Well, yeah, but that was in the context
1: of, of um, I was there to um, help the cause of the Friends of the Earth and the global warming campaign. And then he started muttering about... Um, uh, he was making a series of statements which made it blatantly obvious there was no point in meeting with him because he was going to go down the nuclear route and he thought that economic growth is the, the number one priority and blah 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 so all the preparatory work we'd done or friends of the earth had done in meeting him was completely invalid and at the same time they wanted to bring me in or his people wanted to bring me in and talk me through the whole process the subtext of which being as of course if you leave the meeting and uh, a derogatory about the meeting and say that nothing was gained, then um, you've forfeited the access for Friends of the Earth to the Prime Minister, which mm.
2: which normally I read as blackmail. So, uh, so you don't buy into that Bono line of thinking that it's worse uh, it No, meet but with see, anybody.
1: Bono Bono can charm the pants off, off a devil. <laughs>
3: I I just tend to call him a devil, <laughs> which which gets me in more trouble. I mean, how much of a separation do you draw between your music and, and activism? I mean, obviously, you've been b- involved with Friends of the Earth. You've been very outspoken on environmental issues. How much of that should bleed into your music, and can music affect political change? I mean, Bono obviously believes they are one and the same, and, and that it can affect political change.
1: What do you think, Johnny? <laughs> I don't you know. You give Johnny it's the tough, really one, tough one, right? <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's just, well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just asking Johnny, because I'm consciously aware of it, it just being a pain in the ass. For you, chap. So I try and keep it out of the way. I think political subjects are only
4: slightly naff when it sounds like preaching, such as music. But when it's 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 descriptive, which a lot of Tom's songs are, then it can be can be great. It can be can be as poetic as any other
3: subject. And I guess the part B of that is: can that change anything? Can that have an effect on the way the world is run? I kind
1: of thought the point of having politicians as they do that. <laughs> I mean, obviously, that can get lost. Ultimately, one should do one, what one is best at.
2: <laughs> well, and I think, I think that uh, Radiohead sets a sterling example. I mean, you guys are an inspiration in terms of being a very successful band that is trying to do things w- with some ethics and concern for the fan, <laughs> which is becoming increasingly rare. Uh, I mean, geez, Madonna's <laughs> here the same nights that you are, it's $380 a ticket. Oh, is she in town? Tonight, Tonight and tomorrow, tomorrow night yeah. for the, fourth, the third and fourth shows. $380, guys. and, and That's so a live show, yeah? Yeah. In the same way that Cirque du Soleil, I suppose,
3: or Cats is a live show. Yeah, a Broadway, Broadway spectacle. spectacle. Yeah. But She's got
4: loads of dancers, and we've only got Colin. And <laughs> <laughs> I dance. That's, That's true. why
3: my back hurts. For the level of band that you are, tickets seems to be a re- very reasonable level whenever you guys have toured. Uh, I notice a, a concerned effort on your part not to play with any corporate signage anywhere Sometimes in the vicinity of Sometimes that's stadium. basically impossible, which yeah. winds me up. But these are kind of issues that you think about. I mean, do you do you have arguments with your booking agents and with we promoters have, about this kind of stuff?
1: We never have arguments with the agents about it because they totally understand um, what we're trying to do. But there's always going to be cities where there are no venues like that, or there's a great sounding
4: venue that has that kind of problem. But, you know, you've got to balance... All these things up, you kind of can't be too fascistic about it.
3: Well, as you said, Tom, earlier, that <laughs> you can't basically <laughs> you get to the, the US fascist. without uh, uh, kind of doing some, some of this. You have to sort of accept well, I, some of it, or otherwise you wouldn't be able to tour. Yeah, right?
4: I mean, at the end of the day, you want a, a venue where the sound's good and people can see really well, and it's, and it's in a city you want to play in. And if there's a choice and you can avoid some of the more kind of corporate and rubbish places, then that's great. But, you know, yeah, it's tough. But then, like all these things, there's some great enormous, there are some great big venues in some rubbish little clubs so in terms of sound and in terms of you know putting on a show so mm-hmm. every city's different
5: So,
3: well you know we're talking about this this monolithic music industry and in, in some ways it's an incredibly depressing conversation but it remains to be said that you guys are working on a new album and there's a lot of question about whether that will even come out on a major label or or another label do you guys even need the music industry to put your music out there
2: See, I have a theory about this, boys, and and no offense okay, to, to you as being <laughs> as being British and all, but you know what we've had is a series of of Boston Tea Party like skirmishes, bands that make a lot of noise, put a record out on the web, and it's very well received, or or without a record company, but then at the end of the day, after six months or nine months, like Wilco did, you know that they, they sign to a regular record company, but we've yet to have. That lone minute man who actually shoots at the British, and again, no offense, you know, at Lexington Concord, and the no, revolution starts. Some level of history I don't know here. Well, Sorry. Who, you know, who is going to be the first real revolutionary band that shows the world that there's no need anymore? Better for, not be for, British. Well, you guys are in a great position. I mean, what do you need? And, uh, you know, EMI or Capital again. Y- you could put out this Radiohead record as Radiohead. Who's going to be the first band that does that? It's only a matter of time. I have
3: to say, I was disappointed that Pearl Jam, after their deal
2: ended, ended up going yeah, with, with RCA. You know, mm-hmm. like another and REM re-ups for multi millions, yeah. and U two, which is in a position they are U two Global World Incorporated. They right. didn't need to, to to up with Interscope. Up with Interscope. Let me write that down. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially Interscope. You know, is Satan, man. Jimmy, hi, I mean, okay. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <I didn't>. <laughs> <laughs> strike, yeah. strike one off the list. That's one. they won't be. Okay. I agreed with that one. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think about it. I not even think for two yeah. seconds there.
4: It's tough because I mean, there's an element of, of retreat in all this, isn't there? I mean, you can you can worry so much about these things that you don't bother, you know, leaving Oxford. You don't go on tour. You don't put records out, and you don't. You mm-hmm. have to confront, you know, the, the the business at some point just to just to carry on. I and mean, We want to carry on. So yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm sure there'll be a deal eventually, or a label, or a record company doing something with a recording of Well not house, necessarily we're not going to do it in our back shed but whether it's No but a tiny well, the,
1: the the thing that the, I mean this is the thing that's this an ongoing discussion with Brian who's in the other room and not in here but <laughs> um, is the fact that we actually we we don't have to if we don't want to right. I mean he, you know the, the trouble with it is if we sort of said now yeah we're not going to do that and then we choose to then that would be rubbish and to be perfectly honest it's I think t- as far as we're concerned it's all about effort and energy and yeah. whether yeah. we really can be asked yeah. to start a revolution at this particular moment where actually the first priority is all the other stuff. Sure, And sure, should yeah, always remain the music. that way. Yeah. I mean, so if if it was a natural part of the evolution of what was going on, you know, and if the energy from the music required that we did that, then we would do it. Um, yeah. I think it's great to pick fights. I love picking fights. <laughs> However there has to be a natural reason to do it not just yeah. one where you feel that, that this this ought to happen you know
2: well well but you know it's, you know what i'm saying it's inevitable that, that one day soon radiohead or a band like you will say okay come to radiohead.com and our album is here, you know, for yeah. X dollars, and no, it'll sell 500,000. That that's yeah, that's internet, what I mean. That's, but that's, it'll sell 500,000, you know, in, in the first week, and that will be the end of, you know, this, this the way the music industry has worked now for 100 years and screwed, you know, thousands of artists.
4: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the only trouble with all that stuff is it makes me think we're going to be sat in endless business meetings talking about how to, how to do it off our own backs rather than in Maybe. studios recording music. Yeah. At some point, you have to give... Give, guess, we or... give, we,
2: we're giving away our radio show on the web, and it costs us like twenty dollars a month for server space. <laughs> <It's like, Yeah, laughs> we, we ain't <laughs> getting paid either. That's true. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. we're not getting paid. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's the downside. If you <laughs> want to get paid, oh yeah, Forgot oh yeah. That. Forgot about, <laughs> that. about that. Oh yeah. Got to buy
4: those Madonna stuff. tickets.
1: Yeah, right. Oh,
2: that is
3: a drag. Yeah. And, and now it seems like the internet, in, in terms of your music getting out there and getting shared, that's a good thing because every, you can find every Radiohead show. <laughs> Any way to Ever done? C- anyway, yeah, I know the YouTube is insane. Any,
1: any way to circumvent the mainstream radio system is obviously good, good thing. I think it's a shame that the industry itself was so utterly dim-witted that they didn't sort of see this coming, because in a way, it was like we could have all there could have been a very amicable arrangement made mm. for everybody but they were t- far too busy reselling the entire back catalogue of Neil Young and Rolling Stones and all this lot again and again and again on CD remasters and making an absolute freaking packet yeah. of the Beatles reissues why did they need to care and you know wonder and it's sort of now come back to haunt them because they ain't got nothing else to flog again
0: please excuse me but
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio, and we're in the midst of a live discussion with Tom York and Johnny Greenwood
2: of Radiohead. Well, let's talk yeah. about some music. Uh, <laughs> the Eraser is, is a really, really exciting record. So, you're, Tom York's first solo record... Uh, it's not is, really a solo record. Johnny wrote the v- first chords Oh, the yeah, Well, there so. you go. Okay. And Nigel Godrich is all over it, right? He's Helping all over it. Production. <laughs> like a rat. <laughs> so So, it had both a long genesis and a very short and intense recording period, right? Because some of this stuff, uh, th- these were ideas that were kicking around for some time, I gather, but then you went in and about six weeks knocked this out. Is that right, Tom?
1: Yeah. Initially, it was just an excuse to just to get together, really, and hang out and do something. And I talked to the others about it and asked permission, and they seemed to be all fine with it at the time. And so it was just something I needed to get out of my system, you know. And there was a few things that had been kicking around, and there was no way that they were ever gonna end up being a band sort of thing but equally bizarrely i mean at the beginning of those six weeks i didn't really feel that there were any songs there anyway we were just mucking about and uh, it, it sort of evolved fairly rapidly and um, the more we sort of refined it down i mean basically my thing is and it's, it's always been with radiohead as well that that i just the stuff i get off on is the stuff that makes me want to sing I mean, today, for example, on the plane on the way over, I was working on something that Colin and Johnny basically set up, and then I just came in and played like four notes on top, and it was amazing this beat synth thing, and you know I'm just cut and paste and thing on top and mm-hmm. you know it's an extension of something that we do within the band, and to say it's a solo thing isn't really true because. You know, some of it was done at the studio, the Radiohead studio, and, and a lot of it has the sort of sounds and things, um, you know, beat samples that Johnny's built on uh, his drum machines and stuff like that. So, I, I really, I get kind of twitchy about being being a solo thing. I and mean, it's solo in the sense that I was mostly responsible
2: for the music. Well, it is credited to you, is it not? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there there is. Is that. so it should, it should actually read Tom York and friends. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, yeah. A, a lot of the eraser. You see,
4: Tom on the way to places or even just sat around waiting, he's got a laptop and headphones on, and it had been like that for years. So, you know, eventually some of all that stuff had to come out. Now yeah. that, that's just an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting yeah. point, Johnny,
3: because Tom, um, your first instrument was a guitar. Uh, yeah. And Johnny, your <clears> first <throat> instrument, guitar. Recorder. Okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah. but, well, that's in the third. Right. Guitar yeah. came in there at some point. Sure. Right?
4: Yeah.
1: No, hang on. Before guitar, you, you did something else before guitar. Didn't I pretended
4: to play piano. I had, like, and violin. Um, I got into this band playing keyboards without knowing how to play. So I used to keep, mm-hmm. the, oh, that's right, yeah. keep the volume turned down yeah. and just pretend to play along. And Tom would always say, I can't hear what you're doing, but it's the kind of thing where if, if you weren't playing, it wouldn't sound as good. <laughs> <kind of laughs> and that <laughs> still happens now. Yeah yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah, 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 yeah. But the point I'm getting at is that, Johnny, on your solo record, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the record with your name on it. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, two, I think mm. t- only two out of the 13 songs uh, had a had a guitar on it. Tom, from what I can gather, your record, The Eraser, is entirely composed on computer. Composed, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are pian- there are acoustic instruments on it: piano, drums, bass, guitar. You know, I imagine that kid holding that guitar, and that was like an exciting thing, and one of, maybe one of the reasons you wanted to be in a rock band. But you guys have really become adept at writing on this, this other instrument, the computer. Can you compare it to when you first picked up that guitar and started writing songs? I think generally hardware is usually better than software, isn't it? Which is why
1: things like the um, uh, Johnny's AS system. What is out. that? Uh, it's analog systems. Made by this guy in Bob. Right, by called Bob? Intro oh,
2: is It in, is this it's one Bob of the interfaces Trero. with the computers <clears throat> where you can still pretend you're writing? No, it's you know. like an old-fashioned
1: bay.
4: So oh right, yeah, yeah. So you're plugging and turning and tweaking. the
2: yeah. an yeah. entire room of it. <laughs> That's no fun if you don't have knobs to turn and stuff. Well, this right? is
1: this is the, that. Was, I would say the one thing doing the eraser was there was there was nothing I could physically fiddle with, which got kind of frustrating. The screen itself was not particularly scintillating. <laughs> but you know that was. But by that point, um, a lot of the actual sort of stuff had been done anyway. You know, and had been done on the fly, sitting around as you, as Johnny was saying on airports and laptops and stuff.
3: Isn't there a little bit of, some, of Johnny's music on this, I think, on the title song, right? I mean, Johnny's did did, wife's not, not I mean, Tom did York. You, it's Tom York and Friends. Well, exactly. <clears throat> uh, so, Johnny, I guess my question to you is, how do you feel about what Tom did to your, to your music? Well, that was
4: a kind of good example of it. It was, a, it was a chord sequence going nowhere that he just cut up a dictaphone recording of and rearranged and mm-hmm. turned into a song. So, Would you have recognized mm-hmm. it if he hadn't pointed it out to you? That's a good question. That's something that started At the end of the song, I would, yeah. If you'd left off like the last 30 seconds, he would probably have been all right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hang on, I know that bit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I wrote that, yeah. Yeah.
2: You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio. I'm Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago
3: Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cotta of the Chicago Tribune. We'll be right back with much more of our conversation with Tom and Johnny from Radiohead right after this.
0: Yeah,
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And later in the show, we're going to review the third album from Nelly Furtado. Plus, I'll have a Desert Island jukebox pick.
3: But now more of our conversation with Tom and Johnny of Radiohead. We're going to hear them talking about this tour that they're on right now all over the United States this summer. The difficulties of staying together as a band and there's going to be a live performance
2: at the end as well. We also talked with Tom York about the album he refuses to call a solo disc, (laughs) although it is, The Eraser and how he chose the songs that ended up on the record. You
3: know, it's interesting. The separation of uh, church and state is probably a bad analogy here, but uh, (laughs) there seems to be certain songs that uh, clearly do not fit into the radio head. What the five of you would do is very dissimilar to what one of you would do individually. And how do you determine that? When do you know that? It's well, not going to work. It in was the a, um of the initially when I was when I started up with Nigel,
1: it was a bit of a head masher because I couldn't really it just made me sort of really twitchy because I was like, well, uh maybe I should just stop um and take this over you know, and show this to the others and but and then I thought, well I've just decided to do this now and what we've got in front of us, I'm just gonna complete it and not think about that because part of the point of, of doing it was seeing how it feels to work on on my own or with Nigel just and um, take responsibility for the whole thing and also just to be working in that realm completely because basically it does get extremely boring for five musicians to sit around while one person edits eight bars and rescribes a couple of beats and sings of you know it's just dull it's not it's not a a band experience but we do do it in the band but you know like doing a whole record like that would obviously not float everybody's boats
3: and it seems like there was a certain amount of dissatisfaction within the band the last couple of years where, where some of this stuff sort of bubbled to the surface I mean I'm gathering that from reading some of the interviews in the last year or so that there was some question last year maybe that uh, was there another Radiohead album even going to be made where did you go from that point to where you are now where you seem to be where you're not only touring but you seem to be actively working on an album again well we had like a, a crazy 6 months within which the number
4: of children we had seemed to double <laughs> I mean, last year was a real breeding year for Eddiehead. I asked this um, before we turned the mics on. Yeah, how, so. how
2: many kids collectively? Uh, I said 11, uh, and I was correct, but, but you guys couldn't. You were, you were, were you here? They were adding it up, trying to figure it out. Ed you told swore we, it was it's nine, 11 time, in total it's it's now. 11, and Ed said... It, it might since, be 15 by now. You've been gone since, a couple of weeks. Since no, now. I, I think last, we'd know that.
4: <laughs> since the last tour, Ed said we had six children. So Wow. Which is nuts. Is that right? Yeah. you sure about Since the last tour. <laughs> But you know, once we we got over, we got over the initial six month hell. Yeah, which your fathers know. Nine about, months. Yes. Um, and and we kind of been rehearsing and
2: on tour. So there wasn't a point um, where, where you were questioning whether Radiohead would continue.
4: There have been those points since the bands, really, even since Pablo Honey. Yeah. Of um, you know, fraught. Because it's fraught work. Panic.
2: It's as much work as a marriage or having a kid. Staying yeah. in a band.
3: Well, there doesn't seem to be any halfway with you guys. It seems pretty intense.
1: Well, the, the the mad part about it as well is the truth is that it's not just the band. The truth is it's the band and their families and their kids. Everybody's affected. You know, if I choose to lose the plot tomorrow and, and go and start a, a farm, <laughs> then everybody's affected. If we choose to carry on, then everybody's affected. And it's tough. It's mm-hmm. a tough thing to do. You know, the easiest thing to do would just be... Behave badly, not, you know, be the rock and roll dad and not give a shit and just do whatever and just pretend you're still 15 or whatever.
2: Um, Pete Doherty's got that going today, though. You, somebody else is doing it. Yeah, exactly. It's passe, man.
3: Well, and, and, but the flip side of that is that, you know, you see these institutions sort of built up, like the Rolling Stones or R.E.M. even, where the argument that comes back, like, if we break up the band now, if we leave now, uh, because R.E.M. said they would never, never, ever record or tour without the four of them. And then Bill Berry quits the band, and they continue to tour, and the response I got from Peter Buck and, and Michael Stipe was that well, you know, it's not just about us anymore. It's this organization that we have. We've oh, got the Grateful Dead's so a hundred people, got fourteen and got people on the payroll, and yeah, yeah. families to take care of, health it. insurance, <laughs> and and you have to go back. Well, that's a very noble <laughs> if that's what you mean. But at the same time, is that the best thing for the music? Is that the best thing for the art?
1: Well, that was the argument we had. Really. I mean, mm-hmm. well, that wasn't that. No, to be fair, that wasn't the argument. the whole The whole point in in choosing to carry on was if the music was still worth carrying on for and everyone still but about to, to go through the mill because the music was worth it and if that wasn't there then it wasn't worth it.
3: Well, where would you say you're at? I mean in terms of that uh, do you see an album coming out anytime in the near future or there's, there's a bunch future. of new songs <laughs> that are in the set list when you're performing. Yeah uh, it, feels, it feels like um,
1: basically uh, starting again um, and it feels like this is the you know uh, one shouldn't assume that that what how we're playing these things that we're playing on stage at the moment is, is in any way finished. It's just that's how we've got them f- for where we are now, and la la la. And there is also lots of other stuff that's kicking around. I mean, part of the enjoyment I always have when we get together and we work is that you have things that you've been working on for months and months and months and months and months, and then you have things that just happen straight away like that. So it's not entirely representative of what will happen.
2: I hope no is part of this idea of touring now to see how the material is going to develop even further in live performance.
4: There'll be arrangements played with and and new mm-hmm. ideas and and some songs that might not make it or might might or we might start doing new ones in a couple of weeks. I don't yeah, know. We still, still got a couple point. that
1: we need to try out.
4: Yeah. We have we to have very long sound checks at the moment. I mean
2: Pink Floyd <laughs> famously did that before all of their their best albums, before Dark Side of the Moon, before Wish You Were Here before Animals, they would take the Owl Mountain and tour it for six months. You, you know what, what's really good is
4: that you get to, the fact that you just play the song once that day and you're playing it in front of people means mm-hmm. you actually concentrate on the song as a four-minute, five-minute piece of music and you and you know what it sounds like. It's like standing back from something yeah. and just saying it breathing. Like it videotape. Rather yeah. than when you're recording, you're hearing it all day for two days or a week. Right. you lose You've got all no object. idea. Or even no no idea.
1: I mean, videotape was the one where, like, this called videotape that we got that was just driving me crazy absolutely crazy (laughs) that we kind of had an idea but we just couldn't see it through and there's like a couple rehearsals where I just like i just can't i can't deal with this And then we chose to play it like first night in London in front of everybody, and it was—it didn't matter that it wasn't quite right. It didn't matter that you know we had to change a few things and blah blah blah. What mattered was that finally you get to play it in front of people, and you get to see it for what it is, rather than this sort of uh,
3: series of equations that don't fit together. Well, it seems like your songs go through three stages. It seems like you—I've I've seen you guys introduce new material, and you go, "Wow, that's kind of an interesting song," and then the, the record comes out and it goes, "Well, that." I remember when they played that live and it didn't sound anything like the one that ended up in the record. Mm. And then you'll tour it again and it changes again. It's yeah. like a different version when you're touring it. That's uh, true. Afterward. And that was kind of cool. I thought, especially with the Kid A stuff, uh, mm. the post-touring the touring material, the way you handle that record at live was a revelation. It made me go back to that record and hear it again in a different way. Yeah. Do you kind of know that's going to happen or is it it's just a case of like, well, we can do this better
2: you know, well, it's it?
4: interesting because if, if we'd taken, if we then gone and tried to re record Kid A, supposedly n- using the ideas that people like life, that we were enjoying playing life, I, I, I'm pretty certain that most of them just wouldn't translate back onto a record back inside a studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did them did them right by, by having them quite electronic and quite. Hmm. It's, it's very weird because Brutalist. the temptation is to think, oh, it's great when you've got, you know, when a band are playing in a room, We should let's go and let's try it like that. But recording is such an artificial thing that. Well,
1: there's a sort of brutal simplicity about elements of Kid A that, that if you actually sort of sat and, and physically tried to repli- repeat things that we chose to loop instead, it would just never work. One of the, one of the things you always have to be aware of is the fact that they are two different mediums. And me personally, I mean, I really enjoyed the, the live thing, but the, the absolute, f- the most fulfilled I get is when you know you've, you've nailed it on tape digital Mm. disc this time but you know that sort of ah right okay finally so then so then you have the luxury of endlessly
2: changing it live because you've basically nailed it anyway You're listening to a version of Radiohead's song Idiotech from the live CD I Might Be Wrong which is an example of how the songs from the Kid A album changed when they played them live
3: Opinions from Chicago Public Radio, and we're in the middle of a conversation with Tom York and Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead. And Tom has just finished his new solo album, The Eraser.
2: Greg, I really wanted to ask Tom about the song Harrow Downhill, which I think is the most poignant on his new album. He's been reluctant to talk about it in interviews out of respect for the family of Dr. David Kelly, who was a whistleblower from the UK who told the truth about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. David Kelly was one of the chief experts of the chemical weapons
1: uh, Experts. So he went into mm-hmm. Iraq first time round, and he went in second time round, and blah, blah, blah. And he was kind of a whistleblower in the same way that the CIA woman who got outed. Yeah, Valerie Plain. Yeah, and you've got that whole car rove malarkey at the moment. Um, it's a similar vibe to that. He, uh Dr. Kelly, for whatever reason, unfortunately died.
2: It seemed to be a suicide, right? His body was found yeah, in, um, in uh, Harrod Hill? Yeah,
1: and I mean, the circumstances surrounding it are extremely painful and horrible. Um, and and the song is my response to that. I've never been so upset and angry with um, with my country than I was over that. I'm utterly disgusted and ashamed with the way that the Ministry of Defence um, dealt with this man, and I think they should all rot. Don't
3: It's interesting that um, you you both have been able to make records apart from the band, and I know that in certain bands that is viewed as almost a betrayal. Like, oh, he's he's a traitor. Like, I remember when Richard's reaction was when Jagger made his first solo records? Like, nobody nobody leaves my band and makes yeah, a record. Yeah. And uh, I guess John, Johnny, you were the first one to to do that. And I was, I was curious, Tom, what was the uh, yeah, How'd you feel when he uh, that uh, you know, how oh, Johnny's going off and doing something on his own? What does that mean for the rest of us? Kind of thing. Uh, I was just jealous he had the time to do it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, true, because my first-born son was, um, had arrived, and and uh, the entire world had gone topsy-turvy, and. Uh, I'd, you know, in fact, the the maddest bit about it was wasn't we were actually living in the studio at the time, with my yeah. newborn son on and off, and Johnny was coming in and working down the other end. <laughs> it was wow. like, Hi, Johnny, how's it going? You've busted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was bringing That's in the funny. string quartet and yeah, the jazz quartet. Was like, wow. We was having lots of fun, <laughs> doing these crazy things with drums, and I'm going. I'm going to change another nappy.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so, Johnny, are you coming up with music all the time where you would like to see, would like to have more outlets like that for the stuff? Because Radiohead seems to be moving at, I hate to tell it, guys, but it's a snail's pace now. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're getting on That's three, it. four years here between albums, you know? <laughs> you guys are turning into, uh, I don't know. The Flaming Lips. Yeah, something like that. So, anyway, do you have lots of music that you're stockpiling that you feel could? you know, maybe surface on in other, you know, other projects like this?
4: No more than than, than two three five years ago. He's got Absolute loads. loads. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute
3: bar. I guess I'm, I'm getting at the idea, of, are you guys writing all the time? There's, there's just constantly with bits and pieces of music laying around all the time, and it's a matter yeah, of choosing correct. through this. We often need each other to tell
4: mm-hmm. one another which of it is any good, if any of it. Because it's the weird thing, is you write ten things, you think they're all good, or they're all bad, or they're all as good as each other. But then you need to sort of you need to offer it up and have and have things sort of change and mutate. That's kind of that's the fun part. That's the slow part as well. That's kind of
3: explains F- so. it. Fun, slow. Does anybody get insulted when they've no, I, turned I something find it into a band? And, I find it really weird. But yeah.
4: but you always, almost always, you know, a year later, you realise that, that that they were right. <laughs> annoyingly. <laughs> mm. Um, yeah, that's I hate that. It's yeah, that, interesting. <laughs> that, that's the most annoying point, is when you're so sure. And the, the most annoying is when you stick to your guns and then find out two years later. Right, <laughs> and every time you hear it, you go, oh, All right, oh, so no, is, there, is there a song that is
3: on a Radiohead record today that you guys now look back on and say, what were we thinking? Why is that on there?
1: Probably not on an album. No, not on an album, because by then it's, got so, it's gone through so many filters that we've usually got, got the big uh, fluff out. There's mm-hmm. a few which maybe
4: are you know a little long or we could have done better, but they're all worth all been worth
3: releasing I think. I bloody upside. So. So, so yeah. <laughs> but you're saying uh, there's a few B-sides floating around out there that aren't uh, mm-hmm. uh, aren't up to snuff.
2: Uh, some of the B-sides are good. More like yeah. stuff that they worked on for six or nine months or more, and then yeah, why did we waste that much? That's time? That's in our cupboard, and you yeah. ain't hearing it. Yeah, <laughs> oh, all right, that's <laughs> right. fair enough. Well, there's
3: one song out there that you guys are playing live now that I think has been around for years and years, right? That mm-hmm. never quite got on a record, and people are wondering when it's going to be out there. I'm, I'm I'm losing the title now, but was, probably. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. is that gonna? No. Is it getting anywhere? You feel like it's getting to the point where it's going to make the cut for this next record?
1: I think it's got there, isn't it? I mean, yeah. We'll probably end up arguing about the little tiny nooks and crannies
3: of it in the end, but, I mean, basically, yeah, we mm-hmm. have that. It's in the bag. I know you guys got to go, but uh, we really appreciate the time. We're here with Tom and Johnny from Radiohead, and it's been a real pleasure. I thought we were just getting warmed up.
2: Uh, but I, yeah, I, I You think... want to play with the Steinway? It's yeah, all yours. That'd before. be cool, right. man.
1: So which one am I going to do, John-John? Headphones? Do you see, and <clears throat>
0: So...
3: Okay, I'm going to have to wait for these goosebumps to settle down before (laughs) I can start talking. Uh, That was Tom York playing piano and singing live in the studio with us. What a performance here on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio. That was a song called I Want None of This which you won't find on a proper Radiohead album it's actually from a uh, charity compilation that they contributed
2: to yeah for the War Child organization you're going to hear more of our interview with Radiohead and there's there's more stuff that we didn't get onto the radio show it's going to be available as a separate podcast to be released next week just check out soundopinions.org where the message board is always in business and there's all sorts of other good stuff up there
3: we'll be back with a review of this new Nelly Furtado record called Loose and uh, Jim DiRignano is gonna to be back with a Desert Island jukebox pick. From Nelly Furtado called Promiscuous. The male voice you hear on there is one Tim Mosley, aka Timbaland, her uh, producer on most of this record, and also best known as the producer of Missy Elliott. I consider Timbaland one of the most innovative producers of the last decade, specifically for his work with Elliott. And Nelly Furtado heard some of that and said, You know, I want some of that for my third record called Loose. Furtado made a bit of a splash in 2000 with a record called Whoa Nelly. People may remember her from that debut album for the hit song, I'm Like a Bird. She's a Canadian-born woman of Portuguese descent, has sung in as many as three languages on her records, so sort of a multi culty figure in pop music, and that Wo Nelly record really established her in the midst of that wave of Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera... Pink, these lightweight pop records being made at the time by female voices, Furtado sort of took pop music to a bit more of a sophisticated plane on that debut record, and yet still kept the sense of
2: fun in it. Well, then she comes back in 2003 with Folklore, recording with the Kronos Quartet and your hero, uh, Brazil's Caetano Veloso.
3: Yeah, and and that record was kind of a drag actually. I I was disappointed by the follow-up to Wonelli. With Timbaland, she clearly went back to the dance floor and sort of up the ante. Timbaland is a master of weaving together sound and rhythm into inventive pop music. You talk about avant-garde and pop mixing in the world of Radiohead, certainly the case with uh, what Timbaland has done with Missy Elliott. And that is clearly what Furtado is up to here as well. You'll also hear quite a bit of an element of, as in the promiscuous song, uh, she's uh, not afraid to talk about... Sex, Uh, the the first Mm. two albums, that was not um, very much on her mind. If it was, it was certainly on a much more chaste level than it is with Loose. And here's a great example of it, a huge addictive kind of song as far as I'm concerned on this record. It's called Maneater on Sound Opinions.
2: Maneater, a big single from Nelly Furtado's third album, Loose on Sound Opinions. Greg, I'm uh, incredibly disappointed with this record and I will tell you why you know with Woe Nelly Furtado was a refreshing presence you know here was a very sexy very smart woman who was making pop music and make no mistake it was very well marketed to the mainstream from day one but you know I I didn't mind it because there was all of this musical adventurousness you know she was bringing in a lot of different elements of world beat and recording with Kitano Veloso I mean interesting stuff and she had uh, brains and she had self respect and now she is a skanky. Ho. She has gone to the school of skanky Hodem and been remade as Extina or Brittany Mach 2. You know, there are more than enough women in pop music today crooning about the joys of Maneater and, and not even the whole and oats version, right? Uh, about being promiscuous, about the orgasmic glow, the song Glow, or about, you know, she's urging listeners, a, a large portion of which are, are pre-teens in, in her audience, to not be afraid and, quote, move your body around like a nympho. I don't find it sexy. I find it in-your-face and blatant. I mean, it, you know, it's as sexy as a, just a tawdry porn novel. And it's not romantic. It, it's just, it's a drag. There are moments on here. Timbaland's a great producer, and a lot of the grooves are really wonderful. There are two Spanish-language token songs thrown on this record. But I happen to like them as among the best. No, I igual, and te busque. I also really like the uh, very oddly enough, Madonna-sounding ballad that Chris Martin of Coldplay wrote for her. It ends the record. It's called All Good Things Come to an End. The rest of it I don't have much use for. I gotta say, you know, burn those tracks and skip the rest of well, this. It's just more skanky hodum. I couldn't disagree with you more. I mean, this, the songs that you cited as examples
3: of what's good about this record I think are what is absolutely dreadful about. It. I mean, shes <laughs> I think she's a terrible ballad singer. I think the ballads that she t- attempts to write aren't very good at all. I think they're boring, boring, boring. I don't see why a woman speaking openly about enjoying sex is so bothersome to you. I think this is Oh no, it's I think it's, it's wonderful pandering. stuff. It's, it's not pandering at all. It's pandering. When
2: you got this groove going, I think it's a great liberating sound. She's not a chirping, ho. Chirping about She's being saying, promiscuous you know, is saying you're enjoying sex. She, no, it's not. I mean, you can be sexy without doing, you know, porn. Jim, it's called flirting. It's not oh, talking no, about this is this not is, flirting. This is a it's a very
3: flirtatious duet she's having with Timbaland. And do and you think song,
2: Hustler magazine is flirtatious? The song Maneater
3: is commenting on a character and not necessarily her. You seem to be again offended by the notion that sex as a topic in pop music is somehow you know it always has to be about skanky hoes. Oh no 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 no! I'm especially offended. when
2: it's coming out of a female's. Oh milk. no 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 no! Make no mistake, Mr. Cott, I am offended by selling sex. Well, you know. Selling sex or putting it on the dance
3: floor. You move, know, move your body so my, around like yeah. a nympho. You know, I love it. Hey, you love that with that beat. That's a, that's a great sound. Have
2: you defined? for I your daughter, that song. Have you defined for your daughter what moving her body around like a nympho moving means? Moving around,
3: moving around like a nympho and being a nympho are two different things.
2: I I disagree. Yeah. I think I'm extremely bothered by a very credible artist who had an incredible start to her career on two. ...good albums, the second not as good as the first, who has willfully, after having a child and flopped on the second record, allowed herself to be remade by the male-dominated, sexist, pandering, corporate machine of Geffen Records. I think it's a tragedy. I think all of the the uniqueness of Nelly Furtado has been sold out in, in, a, in a pandering I don't, move.
3: I don't hear that she is in any way sold out by working with Timbaland. In fact, the stuff that she does with Timbaland that's more on the up-tempo side is great stuff. The stuff that bothers me is when, as you cited that track that she collaborated with Coldplay on, now that's, to me... The Nadir of this record—that to me song. is like her, her underselling what she can be. I think she writes great pop music. I think when she's talking about the dance floor stuff on this record, like Man Eater and Promiscuous, I'm there with her, and I wish she'd made an entire album like that. So
2: it's a buy it record for you?
3: Oh, it's not a buy it at all. I think the the ballads <laughs> the ballads stink, and I think those Spanish songs that you cited are terrible. That's a whole lot of noise for both of us yeah. to wind up with the same burn it. It's a burn it. Yeah, we come at it from different angles. You burn the tracks that I hate, and uh, <laughs> I'll
2: burn the tracks that you hate, and we've got an album. Problem, Maybe right? just break the CD in two and share it. There you go.
0: I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just to cast away, island
5: lost the sea. Oh. Now I'm stranded
0: on my own. Stranded far from home. Come on.
5: you remember? We were shipwrecked together. Standing I'm so far from home. Stranded. It's
3: time to pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. Once a week, we go to the Desert Island and pick a record that we can't live without. And this week, it's Jim's turn.
2: All right, Greg, this was a, a particularly tough Desert Island jukebox to do because how do you cap a show on which you've had one of the biggest and most important bands in the world as the guest <laughs> pressure's <laughs> on jim Pressure's A little hard. on. hard but you will recall when we're sitting there with uh, tom york and johnny greenwood and i mentioned oh so you're doing what pink floyd did in the mid-70s when they would road test songs for six months before recording the album their faces lit up you know it's not cool particularly for such an avant-garde band to admire liking pink floyd but i think there are several connections i'll tell you two One, Pink Floyd was always an incredibly sonic experimental band. Not for nothing was this always the favorite band of stereo salesmen the world over. (laughs) People who buy $4,000 stereo systems, you would hear The Dark Side of the Moon in the showroom, right? Radiohead is the same thing for Generation Y for 2006. And yet at the same time, they're incredibly popular. As you made the point, Multi-Platinum Recording Act, inventing new sounds telling us a new way to listen to rock music and filling arenas. The other thing I think is very obvious what they're doing with this current theater tour is they are road testing this material as they talked about in the interview and they're trying to get reactions and they're letting it develop naturally they're, they're enjoying playing as a band there was a time when Pink Floyd didn't just sue each other They enjoyed playing as a band. They toured the Dark Side of the Moon for several months before recording that album, which happened to be one of the best-selling albums of all time. The same thing with the songs from Wish You Were Here and Animals, the trio of albums in the 70s that that really made them one of the biggest bands in the history of rock. What I'm going to play as a Desert Island Jukebox this week is an on-tour version of the song that became Sheep on Animals. It was called Raving and Drooling for years before Pink Floyd actually recorded it. Kind of even before they got the idea to do this allegorical uh, George Orwell kind of thing where the, you know, the album was called Animals. There was a song called Sheep and Dogs and Pigs, right? And it sounds very, very different from the version that many people know. I think it's revealing. I, I think it was great that, that they were once a band that actually played like that and it wasn't just a corporation. Radiohead today is a band that plays like that and isn't just a corporation. It's inspiring. Call us old-fashioned but you and I value stuff like that. And you know, any excuse I have to play Pink Floyd on the radio, you know. So, this is a rare Pink Floyd track from Los Angeles in 1975, what would become the song Sheep, but it's actually called Raving and Drooling.
3: That was Jim DeRogatis' Desert Island Jukebox pick. Raving and drooling a Pink Floyd rarity. Thanks, Jim, for that one. we got to thank Radiohead. You tied it in very nicely with our guests on today's show. Uh, Tom York and Johnny Greenwood. we want to thank them for stopping into the studio. Next week we've got a great show for you as well. Our mid-year top ten for 2006. You live for this list show. I know you do.
2: <laughs> it's not the end of the year, but midway through we take a look at what are the best records of the year according to us. We have some thank yous to say on the way out. Doing the engineering for us this week were our friends uh, Brendan Burke and Mark Schwartz. Tori Malatia as always is our executive producer Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Spiegel is the producer. Our associate producers are Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. Get some technical help from Joe Dessau some legal assistance from Dino Armiras and Jim Russell over at American Public Media is the man. And thank you, Jim. And uh, I'm going to go back and do some more raving and drooling along with your DIJ here. You want to copy this, don't you? I do. I'm not going to share it.